Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Well, summer is still here and it's still stinking hot, even in Alaska, and that's what we're diving into today. Stick around after the interview. Shreya Dravasala has another egregious example of how the Trump administration is sidelining science. This July has felt like one heat wave after another, and we're certainly not spared here in Boston. If you listened to our last episode, you know that extreme heat will endanger more and more people in the coming years. But today we're going to the unpopulated forests in Alaska, where rising temperatures pose a threat to us all, even those of us not directly in harm's way. Alaska sweltered on the 4th of July this year. The trees turned dry, the soil got hot, and forests across the state were primed for the wildfires that followed. You might not hear about these wildfires in the news because they usually hit regions where nobody lives, which makes fighting these fires less of a priority. But as our guest today tells us, we should start paying more attention to these flames because they're part of a bigger, vicious cycle, one that exacerbates climate change and sets up the forest for even more wildfires. I spoke to my colleague, Dr. Carly Phillips, a Kendall Science Fellow in the Climate and Energy Program here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Her research focuses on protecting carbon in the forests far north, and specifically, what happens when wildfires and heat waves sweep through iconic Alaskan landscapes. She takes me on a tour down into the forest's soil. Yes, more geeking out on soil. And explains what permafrost is how it connects back to the wildfires, and why it plays such a critical role in climate change. More importantly, she shares how we can use a technology we already have to break this cycle. And most importantly, she shares which Beyonce songs, when not sung by Beyonce, are the most effective for scaring off grizzly bears. Carly, welcome to the Got Science Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you study boreal forests with a a focus on preserving carbon in the boreal forest, specifically in Alaska. So can you start by giving us the definition of a boreal forest? Yeah, so boreal forests are the forests that occur at the highest latitudes, so the most northern forests that we have. Um, They are below Arctic tundra, which typically when we think of Arctic tundra, we're thinking of, you know, small plants, shrubs. But when we move into the boreal forest, we have trees, um, conifers, pines, that sort of thing. But the thing that's that unites both of those ecosystems, both tundra and boreal forest, is that both of those are underlain by permafrost, which stores a huge amount of carbon. So permafrost is, it's it's frozen soil? Is that what permafrost is? Yeah, it's a mix of soil, rocks, and ice. So basically, if you think of a soil matrix that you dumped water on and and completely soaked and then stuck in the freezer, that's kind of the gist of permafrost. So it has this ice and water component, and in some places, these ice wedges, but yes, mostly soil. In the warmer seasons, I mean, does it melt or is it supposed to stay frozen all the time? For permafrost, uh, the standard definition is that it has to be frozen for at least two years. So you have continuous permafrost and discontinuous permafrost. And continuous is what it sounds like, where it's 
all permafrost all the time, essentially. And then in discontinuous areas, you have areas of continuous permafrost that are frozen year round with patches that may thaw out depending on the season. But in all permafrost areas, typically you have a a small portion, perhaps a foot or two, that are going to thaw out every summer, and that's the active layer. And one of the things that we've seen with climate warming is that that active layer is thickening every year. How thick is it? It can be anything from a few meters thick to, you know, 2,000 feet. Does the permafrost, with the changing of seasons, I mean, does the top part of it melt? Is it supposed to melt? Yeah, definitely. So there's a specific part, maybe two or three feet or so, that thaw out every summer, and that's the active layer. The active layer um, has been thickening in recent years, though, and that's one of the major consequences that we've seen in the Arctic with the warming that we've seen there. Why is there more carbon in the soil in a boreal forest? And so carbon has accumulated over... Um, hundreds of thousands of years in some places in these ecosystems. So it's a very slow growing ecosystem, but that also means that decomposition is really slow. So when we're thinking about the carbon cycle, carbon comes into the ecosystem when trees and plants are taking CO2 out of the atmosphere, and then that is transferred below ground into the soil in leaf parts and roots, etc. When there's no decomposition that can put that back into the atmosphere, that carbon is going to accumulate in the soil over time. And so in these high latitude ecosystems where it's really cold and very dark a lot of the time, what you're going to see is the accumulation of that carbon that's coming into the soil year after year. And a lot of it is now locked away as permafrost. You're studying wildfires in Alaska, both as a Kendall Science Fellow here at UCS and also at Woods Hole Research Center. Tell me a little bit about that. Wildfires are a natural occurrence in Alaska, even before the onset of climate change. A lot of them in the boreal forest specifically are started by lightning. So a lightning strike will ignite a fire in one of these forests. And because it's typically during the summer um, when things maybe have dried out, that fire can spread very quickly. And so in Alaska, compared to other states that we see in the lower 48, they often have the highest acreage um, of burned area of any state. This year, they've already passed a million acres, um, and we're really only partway through the fire season at this point. So it's a it's a big part of the Alaskan ecosystem, and it's a natural part too. Um, these are fire-adapted ecosystems, so they're used to having fire come through. But as the climate has continued to change, the fires are coming through more frequently, they're happening more often, and they're often burning deeper and more severely into the organic layer, the the active layer that I mentioned before that saws out. And that's the part that concerns you. Correct. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about that. The active layer, like all soil, has carbon in it. But in this case, because of the slow decomposition that we talked about earlier, it's got a lot more carbon than other soils. And so it can easily burn. And in some cases, fires that are roaring through the boreal forest can burn down to the mineral soil, which is almost like a chocolate ice cream type texture. So it can take almost all of the organic horizon off of the soil. Um, and that contributes a huge amount of carbon, a huge pulse of carbon with each fire that burns into the atmosphere. What's happening in Alaska with the, the recent high temperatures, um, temperatures up to 90? 
Yeah, Alaska's been experiencing a record heat wave, so the highest temperatures in Anchorage um, and several other cities that have ever been recorded. Um, And this heat wave is consistent with the climatic warming um, that we've seen across the state. And while climate and weather are different, they can be symptomatic of each other. So in Alaska, we've been seeing record temperatures like those in Anchorage that reach 90 degrees. And one of the complicating factors when I'm thinking about my own work um, and these high temperatures is that by drying out these ecosystems, they may be increasing the risk of fire, which, as we know, is part of this cycle that starts um, by releasing heat-trapping gases and furthering climatic warming. So how are wildfires in Alaska managed? Are, are they managed differently than um, in the, the lower 48? Yeah, so there's an entire system that's specific to Alaska for fire management. So the state is separated uh, or categorized rather into four different zones that determine how resources and personnel are allocated to fight any fire. So we have fires that are in critical zones that are near population centers or other values at risk, where when a fire starts in one of those regions, it's going to be attacked with a huge amount of resources to really put that fire out as quickly as possible. We're on the other end of the spectrum. You have fires and lands that are in limited areas where they're not necessarily receiving the same amount of resources as a fire in the critical zone might be because it could be several hundred thousand acres of forest, which not that that's not worth protecting, but in terms of maintaining the natural ecosystem. They might just let it burn. Exactly. I guess the one thing that distinguishes fire management in Alaska from fire management in the lower 48 is that the historic fire management that has created a lot of the problems that we're seeing, especially in California, just doesn't exist. There's no analog in Alaska. We haven't been managing forests and suppressing fires as intensely in Alaska as we have in California. And so I think that's a really important distinction in fire management strategies and history. So in order to keep, or in order to minimize forest fires so we're not releasing all of this extra carbon into the air, what sorts of strategies would would work better in Alaska? When it comes to to fighting fire in Alaska, we can do more with management and implement different types of strategies to manage that fire. But in Alaska, there we also need to just be fighting climate change generally. We need to be reducing our emissions of heat-trapping gases like carbon dioxide and methane. Um, because in Alaska, a lot of those same gases are coming out of the ecosystem when they burn. I mean, I know that wildfires in the west there's a lot of forest management like clearing out the underbrush and that those sort of strategies i imagine alaska is huge and it's wilderness it it seems like those types of practices wouldn't really be practical and i think those are challenges with some of those preventative strategies Um, regardless of the ecosystem, right? Implementing something like the mechanical thinning, like you're talking about, where you go through and remove um, some of the understory or some of the dead brush that you have there. One of the challenges with that is you can do that on a large area, but there's no guarantee that then that area is going to burn in the years when that treatment 
is effective. And so in a state like Alaska, where that's magnified because it's such a huge landscape, um, although there have been people that have been doing research and testing out some of those treatments, the viability of them at a large scale is is pretty low. Recently, the governor of Alaska has slashed um, funding for research into ecosystems um, at the University of Alaska. How is that going to impact the work that, that really needs to happen? The University of Alaska collects a lot of important data about how Arctic and boreal ecosystems are changing. And so with the deep cuts like those by the governor recently, that data might not be collected anymore. So these longitudinal data sets that we've collected over years and years may suddenly be capped at 2019. And so there could be huge consequences for our understanding of how these ecosystems, and especially the one that we have domestically in Alaska, is going to be changing as our climate continues to warm. Not to mention that the University of Alaska at Fairbanks is the true like leading Arctic research university in the United States. And so to have their budget cut in the way that um, the governor has is going to be a huge loss to the Arctic research community, both here and abroad. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. If you'd like a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Please tell your friends, colleagues, family, your local barista about the episodes and topics you like. And if you have a sec, please leave us a review. It's quick and easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, Come talk to us at Got Science UCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So tell me about some of the research that you've been doing at the Woods Hole Research Center. What we're trying to understand is if we can use fire management as a strategy to reduce overall emissions from the United States. So like I mentioned, there are huge amounts of these heat trapping gases that are coming out of these fires as they burn in Alaska, as they burn through that active layer, um, which even further melts the permafrost, which is you know, happening all over the world. But my research specifically is trying to understand if we can manage fire differently such that we reduce the amount of those greenhouse gases. And so as an example, in 2004, which was one of the largest fire years on record, the amount of heat trapping gases that were released from all the fires in Alaska were about equal to the emissions that came from the entire state of Florida burning fossil fuels. So these are a huge contribution to overall atmospheric CO2 and methane concentrations. But unlike some of the other uh, challenges in Alaska, like melting permafrost, we actually know how to fight wildfire. And so for us, it presents an opportunity um, that's more viable than some of those other strategies for reducing emissions. 
How do you do the research? Are you on the ground or do you just use computer data? Yeah, so for the research that I'm doing, we're using a lot of um, big data sets that are compiled by different government agencies. So we're using a combination of on the ground data sets that have been collected um, almost over the past century. So uh, databases of Alaska fires and what their you know spatial extent is. We're using information about fire weather, about vegetation, a lot of which are from satellite data. And so what we're doing is we're trying to build a predictive model that can predict fire size based on things like vegetation, climate, as well as things like elevation. And in our specific research, we're incorporating these fire management zones, the critical to limited zones that determine how a fire is fought. As temperatures rise, is there the possibility of extending the boreal forest into the tundra area? Yeah, so there's definitely predicted range expansion of the boreal forest. And while that might be a positive thing in some respects, because we could get greater carbon storage above ground, an, an issue with that could be that we don't know what those consequences would be for the permafrost. We don't know whether or not that transition of trees growing into areas where typically there have only been these small shrubs and other you know, prostrate plants, um, if that would have any impact on the permafrost. The one thing that I just can't, like, I can't get a visual on is when when you say we can manage the fires in Alaska differently. In Alaska, when we're talking about managing it differently, it's more about suppressing more fires in high carbon areas. Which I imagine is challenging because if your fire is out in the middle of um, the wilderness, how do you get people there to to put it out? Yeah, so there are hot shots and smoke jumpers that are a big part of fighting fire in Alaska. So those are the people that are jumping out of planes into some of these burning forests to be the first on the ground to, you know, dig the trenches and make the fire breaks. Um, but there's also a lot of aviation support in Alaska, and so that can really help as well as um, hiking. Mm -hmm. So you can, if you can get yourself out there, sometimes that's the best thing that you can, the best way you can get out there. So before we started taping, you were talking about the topography and what it's like hiking in different parts of Alaska. A lot of people who visit Denali for the first time thinking it's going to be the same as hiking the Grand Canyon are often surprised by how spongy the floor is. So the forest floor, I mean, and that's usually by virtue of um, the plant species that grow there and also the moss. So I know when I was walking in tundra, um, which is a little different than permafrost, I had someone explain it to me as walking on um, a mosaic of bowling balls and rotten watermelons, and you never knew which you were going to step on. And that can make the hiking <laughs> itself even more challenging. Um, I've rolled many an ankle <laughs> walking in the tundra myself. So tell me about the time you've spent in, in Alaska doing research. You've been there typically not in the dead of winter, but in the, the milder climate. Yes, I'm very much a fair weather <laughs> Arctic researcher and uh, that I've really never seen the sunset <laughs> in the Arctic, um, if that tells you anything about the times that I've mm -hmm. been there. So I worked at a research station that's funded by the National Science Foundation called Tulik Lake that's up on the north slope of the Brooks Range. 
which is above the Arctic Circle. And so I was interested, like you mentioned at the beginning, in soil carbon and what we can do to preserve that carbon and also what factors are changing the way that carbon is cycled in those ecosystems. So I dug a lot of cold holes. <laughs> and so what does that mean? Uh, exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> You're digging a hole in, in the active layer mm -hmm. and, and trying to understand um, what the microbial communities, the bacteria and fungi that are part of that soil are doing in response to warming temperatures, in response to vegetation changes um, across these ecosystems that are changing so much more quickly than the rest of the world. So, what, so are you actually taking samples of that and then bringing it back into the lab? And Yeah, so for a lot of that research, we were bringing that soil back into the lab, um, and in some cases doing measurements in situ um, out in the field, you know, lugging equipment with us. But as you can imagine, there are, there's a certain limit to both what you can bring with you and also what's reasonable to measure on the time scale of the summer up there. Did you find anything particularly surprising in any of your time out there in the field? Oh, certainly. Almost everything was surprising. <laughs> To a certain extent. Um, yeah, one of the surprising things was that I learned that you can feel permafrost thaw by walking on the tundra. So there are areas, so it's bowling balls and rotten watermelons, but then there are also areas where it's almost like you're on a trampoline, but there's still ground beneath you. There's like a mm -hmm. bounciness to the land. And so I was taught that that was where there was permafrost failure beneath you and that's why the ground was bouncier uh -huh. so that that really surprised me and i also saw a wolverine and that wow. was incredibly surprising <laughs> wow how it close. nearly ran us off the road <laughs> wow any grizzly bears only from afar i used to sing loudly so that the bears would hear me um that's what they recommend when you're out in the field alone wow a lot of halo, a um, lot of love on top, really get a, l a large vocal range there, you know, if you mm -hmm. go through the key changes. Mm -hmm. Beyonce's greatest hits, typically. Well, Carly, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I hope we can talk more soon. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest news from an administration that can't handle the truth. Our Shreya Dravasala has the story. I'm about to say a phrase so controversial, so upsetting and provocative, that the United States government is running a censorship operation to make sure the word won't get out. This goes all the way to the top. Are you ready? Climate change. I'm sorry if you were shocked. If your only source of news is the federal government, then chances are you haven't heard those words in a long time. While most people in this country understand that climate change is happening and are worried about how it will affect them and want action, the leadership among federal agencies that should be helping to educate and prepare us for a changing climate is basically hoping we'll all forget about it. And they're doing that through censoring employees and the agency's work anytime climate change is mentioned. Here's how this works. Let's say I'm an agency scientist collaborating with other researchers who are affiliated, for example, with the university. When our research gets peer-reviewed and published, my agency will want the world to know what we found. And my research partners over at the university want that too. So my agency and the university will coordinate to send out press releases citing our findings. Maybe the news picks it up. 
and the general public then knows the result of my cold study. If you're trying to censor references to climate change, which the Trump administration definitely is, then instead of promoting our work, you would bury it. And that's exactly what this administration is doing. For example, at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, study after study of how climate change will affect the way we produce and eat food has come out without any official recognition. For the vast majority of USDA studies, there have been no press releases. This includes an incredibly consequential study done by the USDA, along with the University of Washington, on how rice becomes less nutritious as carbon dioxide levels increase. Hundreds of millions of people around the world depend on the calories and nutrition from rice. But because the report discusses growing carbon emissions, the USDA didn't publicize it. They even tried to stop the University of Washington from issuing a press release about the study. I have a lot to say about this. And so do other folks who've been involved in this particular suppression of science. I'll read their quotes. Quote, why the hell is the U.S., which is ostensibly the leader in science research, ignoring this? We're working on something that has dire consequences for the entire planet, end quote. That was an anonymous USDA scientist talking to Politico about this study. Another quote. It was so unusual to have an agency basically say, don't do a press release. We stand for spreading the word about the science we do, especially when it has a potential impact on millions and millions of people, end quote. That was the director of communications for the University of Washington, also speaking to Politico. This pattern isn't only playing out at the USDA, of course. Over at the U.S. Geological Survey, the department issued an incredibly vague press release for a report that was incredibly specific about the effects of sea level rise on the California coastline. If you live in California, you'd probably want to read a study that predicts more than 600,000 people and $150 billion of property will be at risk from floods over the decades to come. But would you bother reading it if the press release described the results, quote, Coastal modeling research presenting state, federal, and commercial entities with varying storm and sea level rise scenarios to assist with planning for future infrastructure and mitigation needs along the California coast, end quote. Oh, probably not. And the administration is betting you won't click on the report to learn more. An earlier draft of the press release was changed heavily by administration officials. They stalled for months while they took out anything relevant that you might need to know about what climate change is going to do to your state. Once again, I have a lot to say about this. And once again, I will defer to a federal scientist. This one spoke anonymously with Science Magazine about the USGS study. Quote, It's been made clear to us that we are not supposed to use climate change in press releases anymore. They will not be authorized. End quote. The administration has gone so far to avoid the words climate change that it denied a State Department intelligence official from submitting congressional testimony on the topic in June. What was so controversial that it couldn't go on the record? Among other statements, the following, quote, Absent extensive mitigating factors or events, we see few plausible future scenarios where significant, possibly catastrophic, harm does not arise from the compounded effects of climate change, end quote. I yelled that exact sentence at the top of my lungs 12 times before breakfast every day, so I don't see what the problem is. 
and this official, who has since resigned, was testifying to the House Intelligence Committee on threats to national security from climate change. So what he said makes perfect sense and is 100% true. Say it with me. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change! The Trump administration may think that ignoring it will make it go away. But we know they're sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Carly Phillips. Sidelining Science by Shreya Dravasala. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.